0: I'd like to talk about uh, an archive of field recordings of um, indigenous music of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, this was uh, an attempt by an Englishman, Hugh Tracy, to, uh, to record the, the memory of half a continent. Um, I will give a brief introduction to the method of field recording, uh, which is ethnomusicology's most important method to date. And for those that don't know, field recordings are recordings made in the, in the field under non-studio conditions. Um, quite often they are non-produced, non-commercial, um, and documentary sometimes as well, but we, we'll see some differences as well. I'll give a brief introduction to Hugh Tracy, uh, who he was, the context he operated in, uh, his intentions, why he made his recordings. And the question I'm really interested in is the is access to these recordings. He's recorded the heritage of um, various African communities mostly 50 years ago, and what I really want to think about is um, access to these recordings, who has access to them, what's the relationship between the recordings and the source communities as well. (coughs) So we'll have the history of field recording in two slides, or two minutes. This is um, field recording since 1877. Um, Ethnomusicologists, enthusiasts, anthropologists, musicians, amateurs have crawled all over the world um, with microphones uh, attempting to record um, the folk music, certainly, but also all different types of music. Lots of composers did this. Janicek, who you can see here, uh, Kadai, Bartok, Vaughan Williams, Holst as well. Um, really interested in uh, different forms of folk music and how it related to classical forms and things like this. Uh, this is Janicek uh, recording some Moravian folk musicians. And another iconic image of field recording, Francis Densmore, uh, an American ethnologist recording uh, Blackfoot uh, chief. Um, she's written quite a lot about this. Uh, she's written on the psychology of recording and the control of recording. You can see quotes from her saying, "Do not let the Indian imagine he is in charge of this encounter, and don't let him yell because it won't record very well, and don't let him drum because the drum doesn't record very well." So it's um, it's quite controlled. These recordings they were for sort of in a lot of cases were for transcription and analysis, not necessarily for playback and use. Uh, and one commentator has looked back at this period and said uh, what we seem to have done here is traded uh, songs for biscuits with the natives so this is like the early sort of colonial endeavour of field recording but we've moved on a lot past that now this is Stephen Feld um, recording uh, in Kaluli, uh, in Papua New Guinea in the 1970s um, he's recording, you can see him here, he's recording different um, the forest at different depths and heights he works with Kaluli assistants um, and he's sort of analysing the relationship between the uh, the human sound world, the avian sound world, and the forest sound world as well, how they all influence each other as well. These are more produced, uh, better made recordings, and more collaborative as well. They are, you know, this is he's working with local informants. And Hugh Tracy fits somewhere in between these two. Uh, he was rec- he was operating uh, bet- between 1930 and 1970, so he fits somewhere in between the the colonial project and the more sort of post-colonial collaborative work as well. Um, So this is to just introduce um, Hugh Tracy T. This is Hugh Tracy on the left uh, recording a twaf friction bow, um, which is either in southern Mozambique or southern Rhodesia. Um, It's not clear. Um, Hugh Tracy was an Englishman. Uh, He came from Devon and in 1921 he travelled to uh, southern Rhodesia via Cape Town with uh, not much more than £100, an old suitcase, and uh, the quote, "Well-founded misgivings of his family." They sent him out to. Uh, he was the black sheep of the family. Everyone else achieved and became lawyers and doctors, and he was a musician and didn't get his scholarship to Cambridge and was sent out to work on a tobacco farm in Rhodesia. Uh, so this happened in 1921, and he fell in love with the music that he saw. He was working in the tobacco fields. Uh, he was he was an entrepreneur. Was trying his hand at speculation, mining, shoe repairs, whatever, anything, and. Uh, the music, he, listened, he heard the music in the fields, uh, he saw how important it was to local musicians uh, in Africa, saw it as a system of communication, he studied it to learn the language and he realised that nobody knew anything about it apart from the local practitioners, the colonial governments didn't seem to be particularly interested, missionaries were certainly not interested in most cases, um, he thought it was amazing and he wanted to celebrate it. Fifty-five years later at the time of his death uh, he's created the largest archive of um, sub-Saharan African music anywhere in the world. This is Alam in 2008. This is uh, his archive, what was a private um, research initiative. It's now um, quite a big institution. This is the Cold Store. These are the master tapes as well. Um, these are all being digitized. What you can see here is roughly 25,000 different individual items of uh, sub Saharan African music from 13 different countries, nearly 140 different languages. Um, They've been published, there's uh, about three thousand of them have been published, and lots of them, in lots of cases, there are styles and instruments that um, aren't necessarily played very much anymore as well. so uh, not all of it, but some of the music you could say is kind of is buried treasures um, to some degree. And these were the first musicians that Hugh Tracy uh, met in southern Rhodesia. These are, these are Mbira musicians. We've had some Mbira in college several times as well. This is where it comes from. These, uh, these musicians he worked with, he took them to Cape Town and recorded them professionally in a studio as well. This is the music he fell in love with and this is what set him on this, um, on this path. Why did he start recording this music? There were, there were many reasons that influenced him. The, the first reason was really to sort of preserve a record of indigenous culture. Um, before it became too swamped and too influenced by other forms, before it became um, overlaid with too much western harmony, before too much church music began to be accommodated and and, and adapted as well. He was interested in what he thought was the truly indigenous musical expression. Uh, He wanted to offer an an alternative to the uh, commercial output that was available through Gallo Records and other record companies, and they seemed to mostly promote um, more American-influenced jive and jazz and things like that. It was popular but he felt that this music, um, this music should be celebrated and promoted as well. The, uh, the background to his recording project, uh, very simplistically, is, is mass migration. Uh, rapid urbanisation uh, of a lot of towns. Uh, the breakdown of um, community life where certainly male members would leave their village backgrounds, move to the towns and townships, uh, seeking work a lot of times on mines as well. So a lot of his work is tied in with mining companies and he worked with them as well. A lot of musicians were, ended up living in townships working on mines and as far as, far as Tracy was concerned he thought that um, the village life, morals, music, culture was breaking down. It was eroding and if you look at the new urban conditions they're terrible. Uh, they're bad working conditions, they're exploitative, things like this. He thought that you could transplant this old music and take it into these new urban environments and people want to hear it, they'd want to hear their music from home. It would, um, it would be for recreation, it would inspire them to keep making music and things like this. Um, yeah, he, so he assumed it would transplant into these townships and urban environments and for many reasons you can see it, it didn't quite work, I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. So this is, uh, again, this is I uh, lab today, the cold store is just uh, in front of us here, it's much more than just an archive, it's a, uh, there's a studio, it's a teaching institution, there's a big collection of uh, instruments you can see here as well, this is the Tracy family private collection. Um, this is where I did my fieldwork um, for a year, um, where I was based for a year. I originally went to research the history of the collection, which is what we've just talked about a little bit, and uh, why it was made, how it was made, and what were the factors, what were the influences, what's the content of the recordings. And the more I looked at it, I realised that um, the first reason this was made was, for, it was to be there for African musicians. Uh, it was certainly intended to make a, an educational resource that would be there for international markets, international institutions. But first and foremost, Tracy wanted to know what this music meant to African musicians, while I was based at the archive, I could see that it was just vastly underused. Very few people came to use it as this mass treasure mass resource. Um, you hardly ever saw somebody come in to use the recordings. The students didn 't know it existed, even though they were studying ethnomusicology here they, they, they knew it was they knew very little about it. African musicians almost non existent in Ireland. so to come back to my original question. Who were these recordings for, the types of recordings he made? Well, they were for African musicians and the descendants of the the descendants of the people who are in the recordings as well. This is an absolutely iconic image of Tracy's project. This is in the Aturi Forest in 1952. Um, he's recorded uh, a group of Mbuti musicians, and here they're, they're listening back to themselves, um, possibly for the first time, depending on which community it was. And if we're to believe Tracy... Musicians, almost without exception, delighted in this. They absolutely loved hearing themselves back. Um, would sing along with their own recordings, would refuse to believe it was them. Things like, Now everybody's recorded, uh, almost every community there is, is and, and record themselves as well. But in some cases, tracys were the first examples of recording um, communities. He also admitted that this was a device to inspire more music. Uh, he would arrive in a community, play the music from a previous community, and say, this is what it sounds like in, let's say, Mozambique and they'd listen and say ah we're better than that and they'd sing and perform and they'd want to compete and then of course he's got a ceremony going, he's got music going and he records and the cycle continues so yeah playback for African musicians and a device to to inspire more recording as well and what I'm really interested in here as I say as you can see through this image is the relationship between the recordings and the source communities or at least the descendants of the people who were recorded back in the 1950s roughly Andrew Tracy himself, Hugh Tracy's son, who was director of ILAM until 2005. Um, he said that they'd had disappointingly few requests from African musicians to engage with their heritage. He didn't know why, uh, and he even wondered whether the, uh, the project had worked. Has this archive worked? Uh, Elijah Madiba, the ILAM studio engineer, South African guy, he said, um, It's tourists and academics here, you, you won't see South Africans. So they're, they're reflecting on why it's not connecting with where it came from, which was always one of the main intentions. So to think about why this is, uh, the simple answer is that a sound archive has nothing to do with the the lived realities of a lot of local musicians and community members, how they live their lives. They don't know a sound archive exists, they don't know what it's for, they haven't been there. They don't know their heritage has even been recorded in lots of cases. ILAM today is in the eastern cape of South Africa. Uh, This is mainly a Koza-speaking community. Um, For those that don't know, um, Koza is a click language, so Koza, uh, XH, is you sort of, pull your tongue across the top of your pallet. It takes a bit of practice, but yeah. So, uh, also speaking community. Most of them live in the townships in South Africa, uh, not in town. Um, and to absolutely simplify, a township is is a sprawling uh, overspill from towns. They quite typically will have few resources. they built up rapidly. A curious mixture of village and town life. Um, poor in a lot of cases. There are wealthy areas, but this is not untypical of a township. This is where most musicians and community members are probably going to live. And Ilam is maybe a um, 15 minute taxi ride away from them, and most people won't know it exists. This is a community uh, of women, also uh, singers uh, in Fingo Village Township, just outside Grahamstown. Um, this is where the music, this, this is an example of how the music would be created. This was in 2007. This is the type of thing Tracy would have been interested in recording. Um, young male um, boys are sent out away from the community uh, to be circumcised. And they go to learn about their place in uh, their role in society, learn how to mature, become a man. Uh, they're circumcised, they suffer, um, no anaesthetic, then they come back. And they're welcomed back into the community. And when they're welcomed back in as a man, they're, they're, they're sung home. There, are, there will be all day singing songs. You can see massive crates of beer in the middle here. And the women will sing. It's mostly, <laughs> and These beers are huge. They're about the size of these wine bottles as well. They, it's, um, mo- it's mostly the women that sing and create this music as well. The music is alive. The culture is alive if you look for it as well. This is uh, people, more or less today, or two two years ago, and again, I'm coming back to the same question, is there any relationship between um, community members here and their archived recordings from 50 years ago? Lots of Tracy's also recordings were made very close to here as well. And as I stress again, most people here wouldn't know they exist. Um, There isn't much relationship at all between the archived heritage and descendants today. So, um, because I was interested in what Hossa people thought as a case study of Hossa recordings from 50 years ago, um, because I don't come to the archive, um, the simple answer was to take the archive to them, to expose the recordings to them, to see if there was any interest, um, to see if there was any connection, any response, to see where it would go. So... Together with uh, Olile Medinda, who's the guy you can see on the left with the backpack and the big black hat, and Nyakonzima Tsana, who is the guy crouched down with the brown hat, and they have a tape player between them. These are uh, young guys, uh, young Plaza guys. Uh, Olile is a hip-hop artist, a social activist, community worker, and Nyaki on the right is a professional Plaza dancer. Um, We got together, and we talked about whether there'd be any point taking them to the townships, and they were like, absolutely, you know, don't expect us to come to ILAM, but people will be interested, you just watch. So we devised a method. We, 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 we put them on a laptop, we put them on tapes, and we just took them around the townships. We took them into shebeens. This is a shebeen, uh, a very dodgy drinking den. Um, took them into markets, took them into old people's homes, into people's yards, DJed them in taverns, uh, put them on the street, played them in taxis. Um, all the kind of places where people live their lives, on the streets as well. Um, this is because people aren't coming to the archive. You, you, you take the archive to them in some way. And... Um, we exposed them, asked people if they were interested in listening, and just gathered their responses, tried to find a way to gather their responses to see what happened. So here um, we're playing some recordings to some um, some umakulu or some uh, some elderly men outside of Shibin. There's another couple of images from this method. This is Terra uh, Tiotta in the middle, uh, his children, Nyaki on the right, playing recordings. He's a professional musician. His father was an eera, or a traditional healer, who knew Hugh Tracy and Andrew Tracy. And Tera now, um, today's musician, plays both bass, drum kits, um, synthesizers, but he also plays traditional also instruments as well. So he knows something about traditional music and modern music today. He's talking to his kids about them, what's in this music, um, what it means as well, and introducing them to them. And another example here, this is another musician, uh, Colin Searra, a different township in Grahamstown, Vulcani Township. Uh, More of these huge beers again, you can see, and just tucked behind the beer is a little speaker, Nyaki on the left. Um, I hope this comes through in the image, uh, Colin absolutely adored this music that, w- that we were playing to him. We were actually playing them in a different house in the same township and he blasted, we never met him, he blasted in out of nowhere and he went, those kids don't know anything about this music. And he sat down and talked for about an hour about the recordings, what they meant, uh, how it had changed, how he wanted them back. And to quote him he said, uh, our culture has gone, I want it back and I will assist. And then he, assist, he insisted that we took them to his house, he rounded people up, he brought community members to his house. Play the recordings, play the recordings, he talked about what they meant, how music and community has changed as well, and how, how they wanted them back as well, and how they didn't know that they'd been recorded, didn't know they exist as, um, at all. And we'll see him again in a few minutes. And the final image from this method um, is a street forum. Uh, this is Mgani on the right with the microphone. And street forums in the townships, very important public forums. The concept of private life is very different. If you've got something to say or if you've got some news, you get up on the street and you say it. Um, While I was in South Africa, the xenophobic riots um, hit Alexandra Township and people in the townships here came out on the streets and said, this is not coming here. These are our friends. Zimbabweans are our friends. We are not we are not xenophobic here. It's an important way of getting your news out. So here, local musicians and artists started DJing the recordings, started playing the recordings, and people gather around, if you, on the street people just gather, and this is another way to expose them. And Umgani's asking people, tell us stories, do you know this music? You know, What do we know about this music? Do we want it? What do we think about it? What do we think about this sound archive that has our music? Again, uh, another uh, viable way of exposing the music, which is not just listening on headphones in a sound archive, which... I think his clue now doesn't seem to work with a lot of musicians. So I'd just like to give you a few examples of some of the responses we had uh, and then I'll finish with um, a few video clips so as we can see this in practice. Um, What types of responses did we have? Um, The first most common response was was laughter. uh, Sometimes tears, but laughter. Um, people just didn't expect to hear the type of music we were going to play to them on, on a laptop or on a tape. One guy said to me, he said, I thought you were going to play me hip-hop, I wasn't interested. Then you played me Sam- Somaguaza and I, and I started crying. It was an old uh, initiation song that, that 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 he associated with like uh, the most valuable day of his life. So, good physical reactions. Physical accompaniment. People would just get up and dance. They'd they'd, they'd, they'd um, emphasise the dance that quite often went with the song. Um, if it was a dance song, the gestures, the accompaniment, um, the dignity that went with the song as well. They they would they'd start shouting along at the recording, encouraging the recording, talking to the computers, and as as if it was um, as if it was live music. They tell stories about the rituals, the correct way to conduct the songs, who could sing, who owned the songs, who didn't own the songs, how the songs have changed, where they came from. So what we have as as an MP3 and a one-line entry in a catalogue just becomes a a really rich sort of subject for debate and it, it comes to life again when you expose it to people that know the culture underneath it as well. And what surprised me was that listening sessions, which you've seen some images of, say the equivalent of being in here, would develop like um, would develop like ceremonies, women would sit behind the door on the left, men would be on the right, and people would get up one by one and talk about their culture they would they, and it 's all very civilized they talk and about this song what it meant, and then somebody else would get up it became and yet here it was a laptop that was inspiring this it wasn 't live singing it seemed to take the recording for some reason to um, to bring this out again. Elders and youths alike both said that they felt they thought that their closet culture was disappearing. Um, elders said that the the youths don't listen to us anymore, and the youths said that the elders don't teach us anymore. And yet, they both agreed that these recordings from the 50s were examples of strong culture, strong morals, and correct ways to behave. Listen to these recordings. This is how we learn how to behave, they would say. We don't do this anymore. Crime, violence, alcoholism is is rampant in the township. Life wasn't like that in these recordings. They're associating this idealised form in the recording, which is what Tracy thought he identified as well, some sort of mythical, idealised... Um, view of music and culture. Um, a few people dismissed the recordings. Some people said it's, it's a modern urban environment. We don't need these today. This is village life. This is, we don't do this. We make hip-hop. We make Kwaito. Uh, one guy said, I don't need my kids to know about these. I want him to know how to uh, lay bricks. I want him to have a living. He doesn't need to know about village culture. We live in a township. Um, we've moved past this. This was the exception. Most people um, responded very positively to these recordings. And most asked, where did you get them? they didn't know where they came from, even though they were geographically on their doorstep in a sound archive. The most common response was really to demand access on their own terms. People wanted them, they wanted to hear them, they wanted to use them, but they didn't want to go to an archive. They didn't feel free, they didn't feel that it was for them, they felt it was for researchers, for for academics. They didn't feel there was a structure there that they could relate to. Um, So, some young actors uh, started writing a play about the recordings, uh, which sort of reinvigorated the songs, talked about the difference between township and village life. Uh, some hip hop artists DJed them on the street. Uh, some other artists came up and wanted to sample them because they couldn't find musicians that played a lot of the music. In some cases, um, so these sort of forums developed. Like Colin, I gave the example of he rounded people up and he said, "Let me take these to people. Let me instruct people about these." So, quite a um, strong sort of snowball effect, really. And in many cases, we just followed this where it went. And I just, from this, I'll, I'll, I'll form a brief conclusion and then show you some clips so you can see this. Um, if there's a conclusion to be drawn from this, the one thing I want to think about is that Ethnomusicology has, to date, largely sort of focused on recordings as serving the, the, the collector rather than the collected. You don't hear much about what happens to the recordings after they've been done. It's because they, a lot of them have been amassed, not really knowing why they were made. They end up in a sound archive or even maybe a private collection. And quite often they don't go back and serve the purposes they were meant to serve. Maybe they're sort of in a transitional phase. But if you play them to people, people will laugh, they will shake with pleasure, they will cry. Um, They will get angry sometimes, an issue of access, and South Africa is obviously a big apartheid legacy as well. Um, There's all sorts of reactions that you can observe when you take them back to people, but you need to take them back to people to, to witness this and see these. In a lot of cases, they won't come to an archive. The, um, so, my suggestion is that in some cases sound archives, particularly those that intend their recordings to be for the source communities that are recorded, they, they need to move closer to the lived realities of local musicians, how musicians live their lives, how they make their music, what musicians want. And I'd like to leave the final words here, or the final thoughts, to a few of the people that were um, kind enough to listen to some of these recordings that um, I've been talking about. The, um, what you're going to see here is just a few minutes of clips of um, musicians and artists in the townships. These are spontaneous reactions. There's, there's nothing staged about these at all. But you could, Nyaki just grabbed a camera and filmed this as this was happening. And um, the music you can hear in the background are, is the Hugh Tra- are some of the Hugh Tracy recordings. So Hossa recordings from um, the 1950s. A lot of it recorded close by to the townships here. And you'll see people just reacting. So I'd, li- I'd like to leave the final words to, to these people. Fire <laughs>